Knock, knock. Hey, anybody here? Hey, man. Wow, this place is a mess. You know, I found it's just easier to sell it as is. Yeah, but then I wouldn't have this weird alligator fisherman thing to remember my dear old dad by. I tried to spare you. Hey, man, how you doing? Good. This is for you. What's this? I don't know, a tuna casserole or something. You know, Casey just thought you uh, needed a break from cooking and all this. A break, huh? Mm -hmm. Wow. You know, if Jamie and I cooked any less, we could open up our own restaurant. Hey, I got a great idea. Let me be the official taste tester. You're hired. Let's see here. Um, how about... Okay, let's do it. So, um, any, any plans? What's your, uh, what's, your, what's your big strategy here? What's your, what's your plan of attack? Well, I'm just taking out what I don't want to get rid of and packing some others in boxes and the rest is off to goodwill. Well, I'm, I'm here to help, so put me to work. All right, you asked for it. I uh, guess you can take the pictures out of those frames there. Oh, you're serious? Um, <laughs> sure. So, and wow, these are some, this is some great pictures of your dad. Wow. So that's what you look like with hair. You know, I, did, I didn't know your dad was a, a race car driver. Yeah. Yeah, stock cars. Because when I was younger, he had to give it up because it was too dangerous of a career for a family man, you know? <laughs> That's pretty cool, though. <laughs> yeah, ironic, huh? If he knew the cancer was going to be the thing that killed him, he uh, wouldn't have given up the fast lane. Yeah, but he's probably in a better place now. I mean, you know, he's at rest, I think. Yeah. Is he? I'd like to think so, Yeah. But you don't know, do you? Look, I'm, I'm sorry. I, I don't know what to say in situations like this. Uh, you know, I'm just, just tired of people giving me the same old he's in a better place comments, you know? I think, I think people are just trying to help. I know, but... But what if he isn't? He's in what? Never mind, you won't get it. Oh, come on. Try me. Look, as, as far as I know, my dad, he, he flat out refused God. And? And there's a price you pay for refusing God. Oh, like the good versus evil, heaven and hell, Darth Vader, Obi-Wan? <sighs> Never mind, I knew you wouldn't get it. Come on, Brent. You don't really think that God would send a good man, a family man like your dad to hell, do you? Doesn't make sense. Yes. Yes, I do. It, if he chooses not to believe, I do. Look, I, I don't get why you're freaking out about this. Because I'm afraid I won't see my dad again. You know, he had the chance to accept the truth and he didn't. He refused it. 
So this God that you believe in, this loving God, would choose, would choose people to go to hell? I don't, no, God doesn't choose, people do. Look, I don't expect you to understand, okay? It just, it, it's, I don't like it, but, but I believe it. So how do you move on when someone you love has passed away without accepting God's truth? Who would ever believe in this heaven and hell stuff anyway? Look, call it whatever you want. A blazing furnace, a fiery inferno, eternal punishment. All I know is truly a miserable place. What kind of God would send people to an eternity of pain? A fair and just God. What kind of God creates such a place? Someone who motivates us to him, who knows the benefits of salvation and grace. What kind of God would be so harsh? A God who doesn't force us to love him, but gives us the choice to leave him. But who would ever choose to go to hell? Who would ever choose a life without God? For my dad's sake? I hope I'm wrong. It's difficult to know whether you should applaud after something like that or not, I know, because this issue is a, a disturbing one. This topic's a tough one, and uh, I understand that. And because of that, let's begin with prayer this morning. Father, thank you for grace and truth. We've tried to look at grace and truth each week in this series. And I pray again today that you'd open our ears, open our eyes, open our hearts to receive grace and truth today. And as hard and as disturbing as this issue is for some of us, Lord, I pray that you would use it to motivate us, to challenge us, to encourage us, to take as many people with us as we can to an eternity with you. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. We're uh, in the third week of a series called Hot Button Issues, and certainly this is one of those hot button topics, talking about the issue of hell. I understand it's difficult. I know it's tough. I know that this is one that uh, I wish I could just bypass or, or gloss over or not spend any time on. It was very quiet in the last service, and I understand how challenging this will be for us today. But again, I'm going to encourage you to listen and to open your hearts, and, and let's walk through this together. Before we do, before we get into the topic today, I need to take just a few moments, do a little pre-message message. Um, and if I'm anything around here, you know I'm, I'm honest, and I'm real, and I'm going to share some honest facts with you, some things about where we're at as a church. If you're a guest today, uh, I guess I should say, please forgive me for uh, bringing this up on your first Sunday. Uh, some of you are going to say years from now, I went to East Point, my first Sunday, Kurt talked about money and hell. But I do need to talk briefly about, I need to talk about money just for a moment. Um, the good news is, in the last, uh, this last year, January through August, uh, was better than last year. And in fact, about, by seven, about 7% better than last year, and not one time 
in those eight months did we have to dip into our savings, into our reserves to make budget. And that's a good thing. And I want to thank you. I hope you hear this. Thank you for your faithfulness, for your giving. Many of you uh, serve and, and uh, give and, and sacrificially give on a regular basis. And I want to thank you for that. Uh, this last few years has been tough for a lot of people, and I know that. Uh, in the shadow of the Great Recession, uh, we, directed by God, felt we were supposed to remodel and move into this auditorium, and we moved in here this last Easter. And, and again, in the shadow of the Great Recession, you guys sacrificed. We raised $650,000 in cash and, uh, and, and did something that was really a miracle. Uh, you know that we renegotiated our lease and got an incredible deal. We paid 25 cents a square foot for the 85,000 or so feet that we have here, uh, as opposed to the normal price in this neighborhood is about a buck a foot. So God has miraculously provided time and time and time again. And that's what I want you to hear, and I want to thank you for being a part of that. And again, first eight months of this year, we did pretty good compared to last year. Since September, uh, the last seven weeks, we've had uh, uh, over a 20% drop in our income, and I'm not really sure why. I'm not panicking. You need to hear that. We've, in our 10 years as a church, we've gone through lean times before, and uh, God has always taken care of us, and he will. But we are in a period of time right now, and again, maybe it's because gas went to almost $4 a gallon Labor Day weekend. I know a lot of you are struggling financially. Maybe it's fear. Uh, one of the things I've noticed about politics in general is that they don't, it doesn't necessarily build a lot of faith in people. It tends to create a lot of fear in people. So I'm not sure the why's behind this, but the fact is, the truth is, we've dropped substantially over the last seven weeks, and we don't have the reserves. We have very small uh, cash reserves right now because of what we did to get into this facility. And so uh, let me just paint a picture for you. Some of you might be surprised by this, but you need to know. Uh, we need, on an average, uh, 52 weeks out of the year, about $22,000, $23,000 a week in income. You think, that's a lot of money. Not for a church our size. Actually, we run a very lean ship around here, extremely lean ship. But to, to pay for this facility, and again, just to give you some facts, it costs about $3,700, $3,800 a month just to pay for the lights, the AC, or the heat in this facility, just to pay the utility bills. Uh, it's about $30,000 or so a month just for this facility, which is a gift from God and used all the time. This Wednesday, we've got 700 high school kids are going to sit in this room for something that's not church-based at all, and we love using our facility for things like that. It's awesome. God has blessed us. I, I, I so want you to hear that today. But it takes about $22,000, $23,000 a week, about $95,000 a month uh, to, to make the, the bills, to pay uh, you know, our salaries, our facilities, and to pay for the ministries here at East Point. And uh, we've been averaging about eighteen or 17000 in the last seven weeks. In fact, the last two Sundays, the first two Sundays of October, we've taken in total $34,000, and again, we need ninety five. You do the math. So, again, not panicking here. Uh, I'm not trying to use guilt or manipulation. We don't do that around here. If you know me, you know that's not what I do. That's not what I'm doing now. I'm giving you the facts, and here's what I'm calling you to. Would you pray with us? Pray for God's favor. Pray for God's blessing. Pray that God will provide and meet our needs and, and understand this. Here's how he does that. He does it through you. He does it through your faithful giving. If we, we have 1,000 adults that will be here this weekend. You break down that 22, 23,000 a week, that's about 23 bucks per person a week, about what some of us spend on coffee or pizza. And so that's what it takes every week for this to operate. Some of you have the capacity, ability to write really big checks, and I encourage you to do so. Uh, pray, but then obey, and use the generous uh, gifts that you have that you can help support what God's doing here. But if we all step up, if we all engage, and we all support what God's doing here, then we're going to be fine. And so my first call is to pray. 
My second challenge is for you to give and to give faithfully. And, and then I want to just say it one more time. We're going to be okay. God's going to take good care of us, but I need you guys to pray and stand with me, okay? So I hope you hear my heart in that. And uh, if you're a guest, know that this happens about, uh, well, I think this is about the third time I've had this kind of talk in 10 years. So thank you guys for listening to me. And let's jump into the topic now, which again, <laughs> hell and money. How exciting, huh? I know, um, I know that a lot of people wrestle with both of those issues, and many find it ridiculous, in fact, even appalling, that someone could believe in such a horrible place as hell. And we do struggle. We ask some of the same questions we heard on the stage. How could a loving God send anybody to hell? That just doesn't seem realistic to me. It doesn't seem like him at all. And it's become very popular for some Christians in our culture today to say that they just don't believe in hell that there's no way such a place exists. The very idea of hell is so disturbing that many pastors, and believe me, I've been in the church since I was a week old, and I know many pastors completely avoid teaching on this topic, this doctrine, because it does bother us. It's not something we want to think about or hear about. I get that. I thoroughly do not expect there's going to be a whole lot of downloads of this message when they see the title online. I know this is a challenging topic. But whether we like it or not, and each week what I've tried to do is bring grace and truth, and whether we like it or not, the real issue for us is what does the Bible say? If you're a Christ follower, the Bible is our rule of thumb. It is our guidebook. It is truth. It is God's word. Not just printed ink and paper. It is God's word to us. And as I've said over the last couple of weeks, we all have opinions. How many of you have opinions? Some of us are, that should put up both hands and shout and scream. We, we're famous for opinions. I get that. But what matters most is not what we think or what we believe, but what the Bible says, what the Bible teaches. And here's just one passage. We're going to take a look at quite a few. I'm going to move through this pretty quickly today. But here's one passage that the Bible teaches about hell found in 2 Peter chapter 2. Peter writes, For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but sent them to hell putting them in chains of darkness to be held for judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world when he brought the flood on its ungodly people but protected Noah, a preacher of righteousness, and seven others, if he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah by burning them to ashes, he made them an example of what he's going to, is going to happen to the ungodly. And verse 9 says, The Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to hold the unrighteous for punishment on the day of judgment. Peter made it very clear that a day of judgment is coming and that there's a very real place called hell and that it's a place that's horrible and, 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 and unspeakable that we want to avoid at all costs. In confronting the Pharisees for the hypocrisy, Jesus said in Matthew 23, 33, you snakes, you brood of vipers, how will you escape being condemned to hell? And by the way, 12 of the 20 direct references to hell in the New Testament come from the lips of Jesus. Twelve of the 20 direct references in the New Testament to this very topic come from his mouth. I wish, listen to me, I wish there wasn't a hell. I don't think it's good for us to have an attitude that says, ah, someday they're going to get theirs. I don't want to be mean, spiteful, hateful. There's no rejoicing in this issue that there's a reality I would love to erase hell from the pages of the Bible because I am a compassionate, caring guy. I wish I could. I wish I could explain away what the Bible teaches is just metaphorical. It just teaches us something about bad things, but it's really not a real place. I wish 
that I could explain it away as some ancient myth. But the word of God and Jesus makes it very clear that there is, in fact, a real place of torment and agony set aside for the angels that have fallen and for those who reject God. And if it's truth that we're after, and I hope it is, then we've got to stick to what the Bible teaches, what the Bible actually says. And the scriptures teach that hell is a real place of eternal torment. And frankly, that ought to disturb us. That ought to, to be difficult for us to hear. But this issue is too important for us to leave it to our desires, to our feelings, or to our personal beliefs. We cannot afford to get this wrong because the eternal destiny of people that we love is at stake. We can't afford to get this wrong. Uh, the young man I was talking with uh, uh, probably a year ago now, lots of opinions. I love this young man. I think a lot of him, respect him. But we had a, what started as a, a rarely uh, easy conversation got pretty intense about hell. And his opinion is hell doesn't exist, that when we die, we die, that we just, you know, it's, he believes in annihilation, that when it's over, it's over. And he believes in heaven, but he doesn't believe in hell. And I looked him in the face and I said, what if? What if I'm right and you're wrong? Now, if I'm wrong, oh, well, not a whole lot of, you know, loss there. But if I'm right and you're wrong, then this is a very serious issue. And his belief represented some common false beliefs on our society, and there are many of them. Let me cover just a couple. Number one in your outline, common false beliefs about the afterlife. Number one, some don't believe in an eternal place of torment. I've mentioned that. Just don't believe it exists. They do believe in annihilation, that when people finish, you know, take their last breath, their heart beats for the last time, it's over, and they just simply cease to exist. Here's my problem with that. From a biblical perspective, if we stop existing when we die, then why did Jesus warn people about hell? Why did he warn them? If there's no such thing as hell, then why would Jesus warn people about it? Here's the second thing, the second common, common false belief. Some have a metaphorical view of hell, a metaphorical view. They don't believe it's a literal place. In fact, they would tend to say that hell is this thing that we create on earth by our bad choices. Make some stupid choices, poor choices, some bad choices, and you'll end up creating hell on earth. And that's what they want to believe. They have a hard time, and they think it's very harsh that, that uh, a loving God would create such a place and especially send what they would call good people there. I have a couple of problems with this view. Here's the first problem. If you say that hell is only metaphorical and not real, then to be consistent, you have to say that heaven's only metaphorical and not real either. Logically, you just can't go there. It, it, most people want to believe in heaven, or they do believe in heaven, even those that don't believe in hell. And if you're going to say that hell is metaphorical, it's not a literal place, then you've got to say that about heaven as well. I have a friend of mine, his name's Brad. He's a universalist, which um, basically that group believes that it doesn't matter what you believe. Anything's good. You can be a Buddhist, a Hindu, a Muslim, a, a Christian. Whatever you want at all eventually gets you to the same place. All roads lead to God. All rivers run to the sea. That's kind of, the, in a nutshell, the universalist view of, of eternity and life. And my friend Brad believes in heaven. Yes, there's a God. Yes, and everybody's going to go to heaven but absolutely, adamantly, violently disagrees with the reality of hell. And again, there's an inconsistency there that bothers me. Here's the second problem I have. We think it's incompatible. We humans have a hard time. We think it's incompatible for God to be both loving and just. It doesn't make a lot of sense to us. How can God be the loving, kind grandfather that he is 
and, and still be just. And we find those two qualities incompatible. And frankly, it is difficult for some of us to wrap our brains around. Have you figured this out yet? God's a little bigger than we are. That his ways are not our ways, his thoughts are not our thoughts, and that we are not going to understand all there is to know about God. And we tend to want to recreate. We humans love to recreate God in our own image. We love to recreate God that fits with what we want, what we believe. But again, God is God and we are not. And here's the real question. Is it a matter of God sending people to hell or people choosing to reject him and thereby choosing hell? See, I don't think God wants to send anybody there. His heart is revealed, but can we really blame God when we are responsible for our choices? It's even in the Old Testament, the heart of God. You know, people think the Old Testament, God's a meanie, that it's a really ugly picture of God and that he got saved you know, somewhere between Malachi and Matthew. And, that, that, uh, and I say that kiddingly, but that some people actually do. They're, I don't know what to, you know, I don't understand. Well, even in the Old Testament, Ezekiel 33, verse 11, God says, as surely as I live, says the sovereign Lord, I take no pleasure in the death of wicked people. I only want them to turn from their wicked ways so they can live. God is not up there looking for opportunities to smoke us, to destroy us. He takes no pleasure in the destruction of wicked people. And that's clearly taught from Genesis through Revelation. What he wants is for us to come to repentance. Peter said this in 2 Peter verse, uh, chapter 3, verse 9. God is patient. Man, I'm glad that God is patient. God is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Peter says, here's the heart of God. God doesn't want anybody to end up in hell. He doesn't want anyone to perish. What he wants is everlasting life, for them to come to repentance. God is loving. He is. But God is also just. And his holiness and justice requires punishment for those who reject his way of salvation. It's not either or, it's both and. He's both holy and just, loving and fair. Which brings me back to the sobering reality that we've got to deal with. This isn't just about doctrine. It's about destinies. It's about people. And we cannot afford to get this wrong. Now, there are other false beliefs out there. Uh, I just touched on two. Let's jump into now, what does the Bible teach? And I'm going to run through this, punch through this pretty quickly. But what does the Bible actually teach about hell? Number one, hell is a place of never-ending punishment after judgment. A place of never-ending punishment after judgment. It's not a metaphorical place. That is not taught in the scriptures. It is not a temporary place where just for a while people have to suffer there, but it's not forever. No, it's forever. And it's a very real place. Matthew 25, one of the places where Jesus dealt with this issue. Matthew 25, verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all his angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. Jesus is talking about the end of the age, the end of, of this world as we know it now, when he comes back again. And he said, all the nations, meaning all people, people groups, everyone, will be gathered before him. And he will separate the people from one another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and his goats on the left. And then he will say to those on his left, listen, depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. And then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. Jesus clearly teaches here that this is a horrible place of never-ending punishment after judgment. And at that point, the unbelievers, those who have rejected him, 
will be sent into eternal fire and eternal punishment. Those were his words. While the righteous, those who are in right relationship with God, do not misinterpret righteous to mean those who just are good are good enough. Righteousness in the New Testament always comes back to this. We are right by our right standing with God. We are made righteous by what he did for us on the cross. By embracing what Jesus did for us, we, are in, we have what's called imputed righteousness. We are made righteous by the blood of Jesus. And when he says those that are righteous will, in fact, go to heaven and eternal life, it's not just good people, but it's those that are in right relationship with God. Remember the group, uh, old rock and roll group, ACDC? If you raise your hand, it means you're over 40. I know I'm dating myself, but there was a song they used to sing that says, hell ain't a bad place. And the point was, hell ain't a bad place because that's all, where all my friends are. And uh, I remember that song, and, I, I, and I, I, I'm thinking, you know what, that, that might be where your friends are at, but it's a very, very bad place. Number two, hell is a place where people mourn and suffer. Where people mourn and suffer. It is consistently, I mean, there's no question about it, consistently described in the Bible with imagery of fire and darkness. Some say that that's just symbolism. And there's a case that could be made that maybe it's not a literal fire. Maybe it's not a you know, literal furnace. But the symbolism is still, in fact, always, what being a symbol doesn't make it any better. It, if it's a symbol, then it's, it's a weak example of something that's probably 10 times worse than what we can even imagine. And so I would agree that there's a possibility that symbolism is often used when describing hell, but it's something, what, the reality is more intense than the symbol. And what's clearly taught is that it is an eternal place of physical, mental, and emotional agony. Use whatever image you want, literal or not, what the point is, and get the point. The main thing is it is a place of mental, physical, and emotional agony reserved for those who land on the wrong side of God's judgment. In Matthew 13, verse 40 to 43, Jesus again speaks, and he says, As the weeds are pulled up and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of the age, again, at the end of time. The Son of Man will send out his angels, and they will weed out of his kingdom everything that causes sin and all who do evil. And they will throw them into a burning, blazing furnace. Now, is it a literal furnace? Maybe, maybe not. Not the point. The point is that there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Where? Jesus said there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And then the righteous, in verse 43, will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. And Jesus makes this appeal. Whoever has ears to hear, let him hear. Jesus said, please understand what I'm saying. Now, obviously, let me be clear, I do not believe that hell is a metaphorical place. But it's possible that some of the, the descriptions are metaphorical images, but the point is, it's a horrible place we don't want to go to. Which takes me to number three. It's a place of separation from God and eternal destruction. Separation from God. You know that one of the good things, in fact, the only good thing about this planet is the goodness we have from God. Whatever good we have, Christ follower or not, whatever good is on this planet is ultimately because God is good. And he works his goodness in us and through us. And that's part of what we, as the church, are called to do. And imagine being in a place where there is no goodness whatsoever. No God. No presence of God at all. Second Thess Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 8 and 9, Paul says, He will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. And they will be punished with everlasting destruction 
and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from his majesty and power. And everlasting destructions, bad. Shut out from the everlasting presence, the, the very presence of God and the majesty of his power. I don't think we can even begin to imagine how horrible that is. Nobody likes to be shut out of anything good. A friend of mine recently was bemoaning the fact that he didn't get invited to a birthday party that he thought he should have been at. And, uh, you know, that happens. Imagine being shut out forever from the very presence of God and the kingdom of God, not just for a week, a day, a month, a year, but forever. Number four, I told you I'd punch through these. Number four, it is a place of dark despair and hopelessness. Dark despair and hopelessness. In the parable of the wedding banquet found in Matthew 22, Jesus said in Matthew 22, 13, regarding what to do with a guy who did not come dressed properly, prepared. And there's a point. He says, tie him hand and foot and throw him outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Jesus said, if you don't come prepared, it's not going to be. If you, if you come into eternity, into the judgment, the final judgment, unprepared, it's not going to be good. In fact, you'll end up in a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. And what you need to know is darkness, weeping, and gnashing of teeth are very common biblical images that are used for this horrible place called hell. Here's the fifth thing, number five. It is a place of eternal, unquenchable torment. Unquenchable torment. Revelation 20, verse 15. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Anyone not written in the book of life. That's the book that records those who have entered into relationship with, with God through Jesus Christ. Those not found in that book, the Bible says they will be thrown into the lake of fire. Again, is it a literal lake? I don't know. But literal or, or imagery used there, it's a horrible place to be. It's a place of immeasurable and unstoppable suffering. That, again, is the point, and a place we want to avoid at all cost. And one last thing, number six. The Bible teaches the principle of determination. And I won't unpack this very much, but let me make it clear here. The principle of determination. This is to say that God has determined that sin requires judgment. And God gets to make that call. You may not like that. You may not want that. But God is a just God, and he is determined. The wages of sin is death, it says in Romans 3. God is determined that there is going to be judgment brought against those who have sinned. And yet we determine who will pay the price for that judgment. Will Jesus or us? Is it paid for by him on the cross or by us? And the sad truth is Paul talked in Romans 2 about the choice that many make. And he said, because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart. And I, I guys, I, I have to imagine Paul is writing this with tears in his eyes. Because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath when his righteous judgment will be revealed. And notice how often Paul says, it's not, you can't blame God. He says, your stubbornness, your unrepentant heart, you are storing up God's wrath against yourself. We choose. That's what I want you to hear here. That's the principle of determination. We choose. We can choose stubbornness, an unrepentant heart, and judgment. We can get ticked off and mad and stomp out of here cursing my name. Or we can choose to embrace the way God has provided for that judgment to be paid in full on the cross by Jesus Christ. Can I get one amen? That's what we get. We get to choose. Justice is going to come. The point is, who's going to pay the price? Is it Jesus for you on the cross, or is it you? In the end, we cannot blame God 
The argument that there's no way God, well, we can't blame him because we choose our path and we choose our eternal destiny. We choose. That's the principle of determination at work. And that's why this is such an important issue for us to understand. Well, let me shift gears here and start to wrap this up. So what? <laughs> All right, thanks for totally ruining my day, for depressing me, for ticking me off, for bothering me, for making me all worried and whatever. I mean, thank you for doing that, Kurt. But what's the point? Well, Jesus spoke about the reality of hell and the reality of everlasting punishment for unbelievers more than anyone else in the New Testament. He spoke about this issue. And he chose terrifying language. There is no way of getting around this fact. He chose words that ought to scare the hell out of us. Terrifying language. And he didn't do it because he's mad. What you need to know is he didn't do it because he's just looking forward to smacking you down. It's not, Jesus is not saying, man, I can hardly wait to send these idiots to hell. That is not, listen, that is not the heart of God. Jesus warned us because he wanted us to repent and turn to him. He warned us because he loves us. Are you listening to me? Why would Jesus talk about this? Because he loves us. Without question, the certainty of hell's existence motivated Jesus. It motivated him. In fact, can I remind you that it motivated him to the cross? The most gruesome, horrible death anyone could suffer. The reality of our eternal destiny and the reality of hell motivated Jesus to suffer a gruesome death on the cross so that we would not have to suffer a gruesome eternity in hell. He paid the price so that you and I wouldn't have to. That's God's love and justice in one act of, of mercy and goodness to us. If Jesus hadn't believed in hell, he would not have gone to the extreme measures he did to save us, and he would not have paid the price he paid for you and for me on the cross, providing a way, listen, a way for us to escape the judgment of God. But Jesus knew what I know and what I hope you know, that those who reject him will be punished with everlasting destruction and eternal punishment. And Jesus didn't threaten people. He warned them and he begged them. He pleaded with them to repent. John 3, 36, Jesus made this statement. Last verse I'll read today. He said, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever believes in me and who I am and what I've done for him or her, whoever believes in the Son will have eternal life. But, and this is the word of God. These are the words of Jesus. But whoever rejects the Son will not see life. But God's wrath will remain on him. The choice is ours. And you need to understand that my heart aches when I have to talk about this issue. I take no pleasure in talking about the reality of hell because I have family and friends who did, rejected Jesus and it, 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 it kills me when I think about this. It, it causes my heart to ache. Last night I'm down here praying around this auditorium and weeping for some of the lost friends and family that I still have. And you'll never see me standing on the street corner with a sandwich board sign saying repent or burn. That's not who I am. That's not what I'm trying to do. But because I believe that hell exists, 
because the day of judgment is coming. I can't rest. And my admonition to you today, my encouragement to you today is what are you going to do? The people you know, the people you work with, the neighbors you have, the kids you go to school with, what are you going to do to help them respond, to see the goodness and the grace and the mercy of God revealed to us on the cross? See, that's why we do what we do around here. And that's why we're going to keep doing it, because we want to take as many people as we possibly can with us into everlasting life so they will avoid hell. We've all had in our lives uh, what I like to call defining moments. And we don't have them every day. In fact, we probably don't have them every week. In my life, I've probably had a dozen or so what I would call defining moments. And, and I describe a defining moment as a time and place where something happened. Maybe it was an aha moment. Maybe it was a, an experience. Maybe it was even a tragedy. But something happened that from that point on in your life, everything, if not you know, most everything has changed. Something significant took place in your heart and in your mind, in your understanding at that moment, that defining moment in your life. My first one that I remember was when I was 15 at a camp where I really engaged in my faith and gave my life, surrendered my life to Jesus. And I remember sitting outside a big sandy lake under a tree and, and that moment in my life. The next one came when I was 18 years old. And let me just tell you about it briefly. You know why this is such a big deal to me. My senior year of high school, uh, I made friends with a guy named Gary Barnes. We used to call him Bad News Barnes. And he was um, a rebel rouser, a wild guy, very popular. He was a jock. He was a football star. Everybody liked Gary. Gary was a partier. Uh, you would never find him at home on a Friday night or a Saturday night or sometimes a Sunday night. He was an, a party animal. And, and the fact that Gary and I got to know each other happened in choir, kind of an odd place. Most of the football guys would take choir because it was an easy A, and they didn't have the homework, so they would go, you know, and get involved. And, and I was not in football, and I was not a partier. I was what they called in high school back then, a Jesus freak. I was radical. I loved Jesus, and everybody knew it. I carried a big old Bible with me to class and had, you know, bumper stickers on my locker and big old buttons all over my body. Yes, I was one of those guys. <laughs> the fact that Gary and I disconnected is kind of weird. I think it's God, but because uh, we are on opposite ends of the spectrum. But we got to be friends. The senior year, last semester of school, uh, he and I were in American government together. Did you, you still have to pass American government to pass high school? Yeah. I mean, to graduate from high school, it's kind of stupid. You could, you know, you, you could fail a lot of other things, but if you failed American government for some crazy reason back then, you failed high school. You, you didn't graduate. Well, so he and I are in this class together, uh, and we sat right next to each other, Barnes and Bubna. All I can say is, if the teacher of that class happens to be watching right now, please forgive me. Because we own that class. We were her worst nightmare. She was fairly new to teaching, not very secure, and Gary and I, we ruled that class. We destroyed, destroyed her, disturbed the class. We cut up all the time. We created all sorts of pandemonium and has the whole semester. We didn't care about American government. We just cared about having fun. And we played off of each other like, you know, you name it, Abbott Costello or whatever. It was terrible. We really ruined. In fact, I heard, I don't know if it's truth or fact, so I just throw it out, out there as a possibility, but we heard that she actually retired from teaching that summer and had a nervous breakdown. And, and Gary thought it was cool. I was kind of feeling bad about it. 
Gary didn't pass American government, so Gary did not walk with his class, and that was kind of sad. But I will never forget the day when I got a call one afternoon uh, from another friend. And it was in August, uh, early August, and they said, have you heard about Gary? And I'm like, yeah, what do you do now? Well, uh, he, he's dead. I go, what? He was doing 90, they said at least 90 to 100 miles an hour down Foothill Boulevard, which is the main drag of the town I lived in. And he was drunk and lost control of his car, hit a telephone pole, and died instantly. And I just took my breath away. I just, it was like the ache in my soul at that moment. I still feel it. It still hurts. And I remember standing with uh, hundreds of my classmates. Uh, Gary was very popular, and I had large graduating class, six, 700 kids. And I will never forget, it's like I see it still crystal clear in my mind, standing outside in the hot August sun in Southern California, and hundreds of kids gathered around his graveside. I don't remember what was said, but I do remember this, weeping, not just for his loss and his family's loss, but because I never told Gary one time about the good news of Jesus. Not one time did I, did I engage him in a conversation about the love of God and the mercy of God and the forgiveness. Now, he knew I was a Christian, but not one time did I ever say, hey, Gary, have you ever thought about, did you, we did a lot of things, we talked about a lot of stuff, but not one time. And people say, well, you don't know that he ended up in hell. I don't know, and I, God's the ultimate judge in all things, but I do know this, as far as I know, he never made a decision to enter into a relationship with Jesus, and I'm standing there around hundreds of my classmates and friends at his gravesite, and I made this vow. 18 years old, defining moment. I will never let another one of my friends or family members go into eternity without having the opportunity to tell them. I will make the opportunity to tell them about the goodness of Jesus, about the love of God. I will not let another person I know that I'm in relationship with die without giving them the opportunity to say yes to Jesus. And from that moment on, 37 years ago till now, I've made that a vow that I've tried my best to keep. I've burned some friends. I've, I've had people unfriend me and, and tell me to take a flying leap because they don't want to hear about it. But I'm never going to stand before God. I, and and that's what, this is what motivates and drives me, guys. This is why this issue is such a big deal. And the last thing I want to say to you, so what? What's the big deal about hell? Well, it's for real. And people are going to choose. And our role as Christ followers left here on planet Earth until he comes or until we go to be with him is to take as many with us as we possibly can, to tell as many as we can about the love and the goodness and the grace of God so that they would have the choice to choose him. Bow your heads and pray for you. My heart, Lord, is heavy. Because I keep thinking about people that I love and I know that are still far from you. I ache, Lord, it's what wakes me up sometimes in the middle of the night. Because I want them to know you. And I want to spend eternity with them. And the reality of the, the choice that's before them is sobering to me, God. And it shakes me to the core of my being and it's, it drives me and it drives us, Lord, as a church. That's why we're here. I pray, Lord, that not one person sitting in this room or watching this online will leave here today feeling guilted or shamed 
But God, if we feel provoked by you, if we feel challenged by you, if this reality of hell is something that we don't want to think about, but we see it maybe better than we have, and if that changes us and makes us a little bolder, a little more willing to share about you, about your love, then make it so, Lord. Make that happen. Make us a church, Jesus, a community of faith that does this really well, that we tell as many as we possibly can about the love of God so that we can take with us as many as we possibly can from this valley and beyond with us into eternity with you. Help us, God. Help us do that better. Keep your head bowed and your eyes closed. Maybe you're here today and you've not started your life as a Christ follower. <laughs> I can't talk about hell and heaven and the reality of our choice without giving you an opportunity to choose. You may not have thought you would have that chance today. You may not be prepared. But some of you are sitting here right now and you know in your gut that it's time. You've fooled around with this thing called religion and you've thought and thought about Christianity. And But in your gut, you know right now, you know because the Holy Spirit has revealed himself to you that you need a Savior. You need forgiveness. You need the grace of God. And that you are at that fork on the road right here, right now. And you are going to make a choice one way or the other. You're going to choose him or not. And I'm begging you. I am pleading with you. Choose life. Choose the grace and the goodness of God. He gave his life for us. He paid the price for your sin so that you wouldn't have to. Say yes to him today. And if you want to, and you're ready to do that, and you know in your heart that's what you need, what matters most is the choice you make in your heart to believe. To believe that Jesus is who he says he is, that he did what he said he would do, that he is alive today, that he is, that he is the one who paid the price for your sins. That's where that belief begins. And it's a choice you make. But I'm going to pray a simple prayer. There's nothing magical about these words, guys. But if these words represent what choice you are making in your heart right now, then just embrace this prayer as your own right now. Father, forgive me, for I have sinned and I need a Savior. I've messed up my life pretty good, Lord. I've, I've gone my way, and today I'm choosing to go your way. Today I'm choosing life. Today I'm choosing forgiveness and mercy. Today I'm surrendering everything that I have, my past, my present, my future. It's all yours. And I declare you are my Savior, my Lord. And I'm going to follow you. I need you. I need your help, but I'm going to follow you from here into eternity. Thank you for your goodness to me. Thank you for your grace in my life. Thank you that right now you've accepted me just as I am. That seems too good to be true, but I embrace it and I believe it. I do so in Jesus' name. Now if that's you, in your own heart, say, yep, God. That's what I want. That's what I need. And the Bible says that's the beginning now. You've entered from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. You're his child. Lord, for those making that decision here or later in their own living rooms or watching this online, God, I pray that you would seal in their hearts your mercy, your goodness, your grace, and that today they've started a new life as new creatures in Christ Jesus. And I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together. Usher's going to come. We're going to take our offering. If you're a guest today and you want to put that communication card, if you have prayer request, put that in there as well. But let's give as we worship and let's sing this song that declares how great God is. A couple things before we go. First, thank you guys for being here.
for listening, for praying for me. And I know how difficult this topic is. I know I've pushed some buttons and we've done so in this series. We'll keep doing it over the next two or three weeks. But pray, keep praying. Keep your hearts open and tender. And leave here today not feeling guilty or afraid, but leave here feeling motivated. Motivated to, 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 to do whatever you can to proclaim the good news to all around you. If you're here today and you need prayer, there'll be people down front. Uh, communion's available both sides of the room. If today you started your life as a Christ follower, man, I want to encourage you to tell somebody. Confess through their mouth. The Bible says believe with your heart and then confess through their mouth that what Jesus has done. Tell someone today that you began your life as a Christ follower. And uh, back in the doors, by the doors on the tables there, this packet's got uh, Bible and some material. You start your walk with Jesus. Pick one of those up. One last thing I want to say. This class, Fearless Conversations, that actually started this service today, right across the that wall there in the Cousy Cafe is an awesome opportunity for you to grow in this. People say all the time, well, I don't know what to say, and I don't really, I, don't know, I get all nervous and tongue-tied, and I don't know that much, and, and I get it. Believe me, I understand how intimidating it can be to talk to people about God. This class, Fearless Conversations, is designed to help you share your story and his story in a very, very relational way. And it's not too late. You missed the orientation today. You show up next Sunday during this service. And uh, they've got the books there. You can get them and get ready for the class. But I would encourage you to consider doing that. I love you guys. I'm grateful for you. May you go this week understanding the reality of heaven and hell. And may that motivate you to live like heaven and to preach like hell. God bless you guys. Thanks for coming.